the last Lamborghini that I had went to Lebanon for like a year and a half. There was a gap in a vacation. Back. Exactly, <laughs> a small vacation to a, a war torn <laughs>Hi guys, Matt LaMarche here with Keller Williams First Atlanta. Hope you guys are doing well. If you have a business or a nonprofit that you'd like to see featured here, please feel free to give me a call at 678-687-4397 or shoot me an email to matt at mattlamarche.com. Thanks so much. We're here today with uh, Ed. Ed, please tell us, uh, for those five or six people out there that don't know who you are, uh, who you are and, and what you do. Sure. My name is Ed Bolian. I'm from Alpharetta, Georgia. I own a company called VinWiki that's kind of like a social version of Carfax. We crowdsource vehicle history and one of the main ways we evangelize that concept is through a content marketing strategy called VinWiki Car Stories on YouTube. So me and my friends sit around and tell interesting stories about cars. Matt's come and told a couple stories for us and they've done quite well. And it's just a great way to give somebody something that's entertaining but also lead them to our app. So. Over the past, I guess, about 18 months, we've grown up to a YouTube audience of about 640,000 subscribers, and about 25% of those have translated into uh, downloads in our app. So we're up to, we actually, yesterday, we passed 150,000 app users, and that's been just a, a great thing. It creates new and interesting content each day. Fantastic. Yeah, I've, I've been watching both from close by and from afar, and seeing, uh, just especially in the last year, the unbelievable success that is the YouTube channel, and as we were talking a bit before off-camera, certainly a bit unexpected. <laughs> yeah, I certainly never set out to be an automotive YouTuber. It's, uh, it's a great, obviously, social media video creation is a great way to direct traffic towards what you're doing because people want to consume video more than they want to consume a pretty Instagram picture or an interesting tweet. They love to be able to really dig deep and get into what, you know, whatever they can learn about what you're doing. Right. Well, and it's valuable too because you're building the audience and as you were talking about, you know, to, to get to a number of downloads, I mean, in this day and age, there's a lot of noise out there, right? And especially in the car world, the car world is one of those that I kind of see as a, there's a lot going on, none of it's really great. But there are a couple kind of home runs that have been hit, and especially on YouTube, I feel like over the last two or three years, there's really been an explosion of car-related content. Sure, and anytime you start with a social media content creation strategy as a marketing initiative, you've kind of got to be sensitive to how the algorithms are going to treat your content, how it's going to proliferate within the audience, how it's going to be shared. And YouTube has done a, a better job than most platforms of exposing audiences to creators that they can relate to. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that our videos have outperformed what they probably deserve to just based on the audience that we have throughout each kind of growth stage. And I think that's because, you know, partially our content's very evergreen. Nothing, none of this stuff that happened yesterday. Right. This is you talking about a bachelor party or me talking about a car I bought five, six years ago. And so it's just as interesting tomorrow as it is today, but at the same time, it's something that people can binge through. We don't stretch things out into such a long form with a ton of ads stitched in. It's very direct and to the point, and we don't you know, try to fluff it up to be longer than it needs to be. So yeah. just a story. <laughs> Which is fantastic because people relate to a story, they connect with it, they connect to the person or to the car or to you know, some particular instance within that story. And then they're going to go and tell their friends, either virtually or quite literally, right, face-to-face. -face. Um, well, give us a little more about you. I mean, I, again, I know your background and kind of where you've come from and 
where this whole thing kind of cropped up. But tell us a little more about you, you know, starting from like college and kind of where we are present day. So I'm through about 15 years into the car industry in both entrepreneurial and traditional kind of aspects. I started an exotic car rental company while I was a student at Georgia Tech, ran that for about five years. And as the kind of market downturn, renting was a great option because you were avoiding the depreciation that most owners were experiencing. But then as it bottomed out, as a lot of the real estate market saw, the people that had decent enough credit left just started scooping up stuff for pennies on the dollar. The same was true for cars. So the quality of my customer base just kind of started to erode. And so I was being asked by the local exotic car dealerships to come and sell cars and ended up agreeing to come and sell some Lamborghinis for Lamborghini Atlanta. And at the time they were just Lamborghini and Lotus, but throughout the time I was there, we added Aston Martin and McLaren. And it was a lot of fun. I mean, sales is always fun. You, you know, it's transactional, it's high paced, it's, it's intense, but that's what we like. And you know, eventually you get tired of the hours as I did and just wanted to come out and try something new. During that time, I happened to set the New York to LA cannonball run record in my Mercedes CL55. So we drove from New York to Los Angeles faster than anyone else ever has, averaging 100.3 miles an hour for 2,800 miles. So that kind of added to the uh, notoriety or I guess appeal in some of my own social media audience and then kind of trying to translate that to a startup was interesting. You have VinWiki, the, the way the app works, it allows anybody to post anything to any car by its VIN or by its license plate, and that develops a social timeline like you'd be used to on any other social media app. And in doing so, it just kind of became a great way for people to tell the stories of their cars, and it grew out of the way I sold cars. And everybody in sales takes their own kind of path in terms of how they want to run a process through for a customer, how I want to introduce you to me, introduce you to my product, introduce you to who you're buying it from and how that's going to work and what it's going to look like after the sale. Mm -hmm. And so VinWiki was a way for me to reflect that in the way that I would curate the history of a car, the same way someone might curate the history of a house or a piece of art or some family heirloom to say, this is what this means to me. It's differently than what Carfax AutoCheck or the internet might say, mm -hmm. but it really is this idea. And you know, cars transcend cars the same way houses or anything else do. Like it introduces people together, it builds relationships, and VinWiki is designed to be kind of a reflection of that, not just the institutional data you might find elsewhere, the oil changes and servicing and things like that, but really the owner's connection mm -hmm. to the car. And a lot of social proof that comes along with that as well. Exactly. That's the idea is that, you know, you want to be able to document what you do, whether it's the maintenance that you do, the drives you do, the provenance or significance to the car, if a repair that has to be done or a modification or anything like that. And so VinWiki is a great way to do that where the other kind of platforms can't capture that data very well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was watching one of your videos the other day that talked about how much money you had made over the last several uh, several years, almost the last decade, I guess. Well, we have a very aspirational audience, and sure. car flipping is one of those things that it's mm -hmm. it's kind of like going pro and owning cars, <laughs> and that's one of the t kind of video types that have done well. And anytime you see someone who has more toys or cars or whatever, then it seems like they ought to, given what you know about them. There's usually one of two deductions to take from that, either the money's coming from somewhere else, like their families, or they have a tremendous amount of debt. Mm -hmm. And that's always been my answer. It's just the, the cultivation of good credit just empowers you to go out and do whatever it is you want to with respect to whatever your hobbies are. And if it's cars, being able to get big car loans 
makes it so much easier to amplify whatever you can do in terms of flipping cards. That was really the messaging in that, not I'm so great at this, but this is the secret. The, right. you know, the secret sauce to being able to flip cards is being able to finance cards. Correct. And I, I have been able to do that well. <laughs> That's funny. Well, so talk to us a little more about the app, how the idea kind of came along because you know, when we think about our cars, we don't think about Facebook for our cars, right? We don't think about having a social network, but we have a deep connection, especially in this country, with our cars. Yeah. We are a car-driven society, right? And, and they mean more to us than they probably mean anywhere else. So talk to us a little bit about why it's important to tell the story, um, not just through the app, but even through the YouTube videos, how people have connected those dots, so to speak. There's a TED talk by a woman, Nancy Duarte, and she talks about how you tell someone about yourself or what you do, and, and her message is that you tell a story. That I can tell you all the statistics, all the facts, all the things about a thing in the world, mm -hmm. and it'll just go in one ear and out the other. But if I tell you a story that encapsulates what I do and, and really defines it and hammers it home, that will stick with you. Mm -hmm. And so no matter what it is that you're trying to do, if you can build that into a boiled down, precise, but compelling and entertaining story, whatever point you're trying to make is going to be a lot more lasting. And so I always made it a habit of putting the people in my life together that had the ability to do great things in a room together periodically and just spitballing ideas around. And so I, as I just got kind of tired of the hours and you know the, the everything about selling cars, I, I did that again and I got a bunch of friends together with different talents, different skills, different backgrounds and said, hey, here's a few of my ideas, I'd love to hear yours, but I want us to come up with something that we can all get behind that maybe becomes something bigger in the future. And I had no expectation whatsoever that an idea like VinWiki would ever become even a full-time job for me. I just thought it would be something really cool that we could create that would be a useful tool because it was based on a lot of the things that I had done personally for the years prior. Like for instance, I made a list on my website of all the VINs of all the cars I ever owned because I wanted people to be able to Google the VINs in the future and find me because I wanted to know where they went. Mm. It's really easy, you know, with some tools to look back and get some information about where a car's been, but after you sell it, you always wonder, whatever happened to my car or my grandfather's car or whatever, this car I liked when I saw it for sale years ago at a dealership. And so the greatest thing that I like about VinWiki is our ability to create lists. And it grew out of that. It said, I want to be able to build a list of all the cars I've owned or all of a certain type of rare car or all the cars I saw at an event. And then I want to be able to track where they end up. Mm -hmm. And so throughout making my own list on my website, I'd find out that one of my Land Rovers got exported to Russia, one ended up in Puerto Rico, my first Lamborghini went to Hong Kong, one of my Ferraris got crashed, one of them got stolen and then found. And it was just so much fun to kind of get these tidbits of things. Mm -hmm. And even things that I should have known about beforehand still turn up now. Like yesterday or a few days ago, I found out that a, the last Lamborghini that I had went to Lebanon for like a year and a half. There was a gap in- A vacation. Back. Exactly, a small <laughs> vacation to a, a war tournament. And it, uh, it was just fascinating to see, all right, well, that the process of bringing it back in, it doesn't need to be federalized or anything, so you don't necessarily see some entry there. Hmm. It's just one of these crazy things that happens. Well, that's nuts. We'll, we'll definitely have to do a little walk around of your new abode here and just show people kind of what you're into now. Um, I think this is like, 
car guy heaven as far as the house is concerned. But I'll tell you, it was the hardest thing I think I've ever done as a car enthusiast was try to buy a house. I mean, we looked for years because my last house was great. It was a good investment. It's a good location, everything else. But it only had a two-car garage. And there was kind of a place to build one, but the HOA was restrictive. And even though I went through all the process, I'm like, do I want to spend fifty to hundred thousand dollars adding something to my house that won't add any value? Right. I'd much rather find a house where someone else has poured in value and let them not get anything for it because that's what the market seems to do. It's just like building a pool or landscaping your place beautifully, mm-hmm. anything like that. It makes it easier to sell, probably, right. but not necessarily for more money. So we shopped for like four years for like the perfect car guy house. Mm. Wanting a huge garage, because I always had to have a warehouse somewhere, or a storage facility or whatever, to store different cars and projects and things like that. And so I uh, finally found uh, the perfect place. Yeah, no doubt. It's uh, driving up, it's impressive, but it definitely, I mean, you're right though, that, that's something, and I've had this discussion with countless friends that have three, four, five, six cars that are saying, unless I can find something on a big piece of property that I am gonna to have to build. And as we were saying before, no one wants to just go out and build a $100,000 garage that's gonna add zero. <laughs> and even more, narrow your market of potentially selling the house later on, right? But um, but it's in a fantastic location and it, it hits a lot of the other boxes, I think, exactly. for enough of the market that you shouldn't be too afraid of selling it eventually. Well, exactly, yeah. And, and fortunately, I don't feel like I had to pay a massive premium for the garage in this context. I, I would have been open to something, but at the same time, like the way that construction costs are right now, mm-hmm. particularly in Atlanta, it's way too expensive per square foot to build an unfinished you know, steel building garage, yeah. much less something that fits the architecture of a house or a neighborhood right. or whatever somebody's rule they get to put mm-hmm. in front of you. That's a good point. Hmm. Very good. Um, so tell us what's next, not just for you, but for VimWiki, for the YouTube channel. I mean, what, what is your next, uh, say, three to five years look like? You know, when we, when we set out on the journey with VimWiki, we knew that it was going to be kind of a tiered or layered development process. So we're about to roll out the second version of the app that fixes some bugs and adds some features and adds some stickiness that we know we need. But we're also looking for different partnerships for more data, more ingestion of different things. And, I think it's going to be a lot more of a, a value-rich experience for all of our users. We've certainly got people that get it, they love it, they post way more than I ever expected mm-hmm. them to. But I think it's going to be interesting to see as that grows. You know, this year we'll probably hit a million subscribers on the YouTube channel. We'll probably hit a quarter of a million users in the app, and you never know. It's uh, we always have these discussion with larger automotive data companies because mm-hmm. Vinwiki is kind of the perfect special sauce to put on top of a large automotive data set because the things that we expose, like Lamborghinis going on vacation to Lebanon, they don't find. Like that's not easily available data. They can find the rest of the stuff, the title transfers and the servicing and the accident records and the police reports and stuff like that. But the kind of things that we get from now having more data sources than Carfax or AutoCheck do, it's novel. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. And so as that continues to grow and become more of a formidable idea with respect to the whole of automotive data, I think it's going to become something useful and we'll see what happens. Cool. And we can expect more car stories. Guys. There will certainly be more <laughs> car stories. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, the last two things, um, you're not going to have an easy answer to this question. And I, I prematurely expect there will be a list probably. So I'll just ask you for your top five cars, uh, unicorns, Maybe some that you have, some that you don't. Um, you know, just just two or three even that would 
that you, no questions asked, those are in the garage? <laughs> well, growing up as a 90s kid, a McLaren F1 LM, okay. uh, you know, stays the top. It's, it's a little bit cliche, but <laughs> I loved them when they were under a million dollars. But just, you know, <laughs> at, at 15, why not? I mean, why not? Uh, an LM is probably 25 today. But um, I, the next for me is, a, uh, is the Ferrari Daytona that Yates and Gurney drove in Cannonball. Okay. Uh, it's just the coolest Ferrari I think that exists. It's beautiful, it's significant. It's significant to me as someone who still kind of continues that kind of legacy. So I love it. Uh, I love the Bugatti Veyron. It's just, it's a perfect car that just encapsulates everything that a manufacturer could have done mm -hmm. in the mid-2000s with mm -hmm. a hypercar. And I think it's really the first hypercar in the sense that it didn't necessarily grow out of a manufacturer's line like the Ferrari supercars and things always have. And that line gets blurred, but I, I just, I love the car. And uh, the next would be two Lamborghinis, uh, the Diablo GT and the LP640 with a manual. The, the last, the LP640 is, is honestly my favorite car because all of those that I like beyond it are five to ten times as right. much to drive. We'll call it attainable. Of, yeah, and, well, <laughs> even if you had, like if you said, here's the car, mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to actually put miles on the Lamborghini right. because it, you know, worst case scenario is like ten to twenty thousand dollars, which is an insane amount of money. But at the same time, worst case scenario, one of the others is two hundred fifty, five hundred thousand dollars if something catastrophic happens. And right. so, it's nice to know that you know, yes, it would be a very bad day, but it wouldn't be a, a life-altering day if, if something bad happened. But gotcha. you can't go wrong. <laughs> no Porsches on the list. Sorry. <laughs> All good. All good. No. No love lost. Um, so the last, uh, the last question. Just you know, as as I uh, admire you for what you've done, not just with the YouTube channel, but certainly with your social media um, and, and trying to build a community around you know what you love. So just two or three things, and they don't just have to be social media, but you know, just just two or three tips that you might have for someone that you know is in their early twenties or mid twenties or even their early thirties and have kind of been in the marketplace and say. Kind of, you know, what most people say, which is, I don't want to sell cars anymore. I don't want to work for that that corporation or that company anymore. I want to go out and create something of my own. What would be your two or three pieces for us? For me, it's it's a lot like sales. Anytime you have a goal, whether it's two hours from now for the outcome or 20 years from now, everything that you do needs to point towards that goal. Mm -hmm. And so if, if I want to sell you something and we go to lunch, Everything I do is going to be about making you believe that I make good decisions and that my advice is valuable and that you need to agree with whatever I say. And I'm going to do that in subtle ways by giving you good advice or commenting something or complimenting whatever you're doing and, and just making sure that we're building a rapport that can eventually lead to you saying yes when I ask for the clothes. Mm -hmm. And so the same thing is true for any kind of goal. If I want to have this job or have this car or have this goal, I want to look at, all right, I need to make a decision right now and, and there's options. Which of these options makes it more likely that I end up where I want to be? And it's hard for people to think several steps ahead of everything they do, right. but it's kind of like having this master plan, even if it's not a right now plan, at least lets you know the things you don't want to interfere with. Mm -hmm. So if I know that at some point I'm going to need great credit or I'm going to need this kind of savings or I'm going to need to be in this kind of place or have this type of peripheral idea, I don't want to do anything that compromises that in the meantime. Right. I want to make sure that everything I do points in that direction. And so if, 
if you want to have a social media audience, if you want to have a cool car, if you want to build a great relationship with a network of really supportive friends, you've got to make sure that you're the person to be doing that thing. And so it's not, it's not about thinking about what do I need to do right now. It's about thinking about what are the things that I'm doing right now adding or subtracting from my ability to do that in the future. Yeah. Well, and there's a great point there, too. I think that a lot of people talk about execution and about, well, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that or I can't wait till I get that car, but then they don't put the action behind it, right? And, um, and I think that the, the first part that you said there is really, really important is that a lot of people talk that way, very few act upon it, but I, I like to believe that whoever you are in business, in personal and spiritual, you know, all of this stuff, it's all the same thing. I mean, I, I hope that when when you meet me or when someone meets you, that they see a genuine, authentic, you know, person that's built just stuffed full of integrity. That we're the same people all the time. <laughs> you know, there's not a massive contradiction between what we do here and what we want to stand Absolutely. for. And and yeah, for me, that's that's always central. I mean, it's you know, some things that you do are very transactional. They're they're very you know, encounter-based, and mm -hmm. for me, the belief in God, spirituality, and just the, the, the effort to, to make that known, make that clear, is a huge part of who I am and the messaging that I want to send out there, and I want to make sure, certainly, that nothing that I do right now interferes with the goals that I have in terms of career stuff, whatever, but most of all, I want to make sure that none of it interferes with my testimony or my ability to convey that message. Mm, wonderful. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for watching. Ed, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. We'll have to take a look at a couple cars and see what's currently in the stable. Absolutely. <laughs> and whether or not that's going to change. Come on in. <laughs>